I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father, crisscross. Hello and welcome again to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And I am Ian Woodington. And as we always do, we will bring you our weekly recommendations. Ian, what do you have for us this week? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a bit of an absurdist track. I know they're not the most popular films ever made, but they do have their place in history. I am something of a uh, blaxploitation fan. Great. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for them. I think they're just ridiculous and fun and, and stuff like Shaft and Coffee and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is just a great name. Which really started the whole black exploitation movement. Anyway, yeah. um, I've uh, I've got a I've got a friend who has been broadening my horizons when it comes to black exploitation films and lent me a copy of Bucktown from 1975, I believe, shot in uh, mainly in Kansas City, and it stars the great Fred Williamson, who some will probably know from uh, probably his most prolific recent thing. Uh, it's not even that recent, but uh, from Dust Till Dawn, he's in that. And uh, the great, great Pamela Greer from Jackie Brown and uh, The L Word, I think was the, the, the big show that she was in a few years back. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Also, it's got a very uh, Carl Weathers right about oh, to yeah? Peak. Yeah, this is right the year before Rocky. <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> and, the, and his costumes are just ridiculous in it. Anyway, so Bucktown, a, uh, a man from the city. They don't say which, I don't believe they say which coast, but you get, it's either New York or L.A. Uh, he comes back to his hometown to bury his brother. Uh, his brother is a uh, is a is a bar owner who has been. He finds out has been essentially killed by these very racist ass good old boys. Caught these cops. Who, what's you know, changed? What's changed? Yeah. Who, who you know essentially muscled the town. Great. And uh, he's there essentially just to collect whatever his brother's assets were, and then get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. He ends up being talked into reopening the bar, and then things just go downhill from there. The cops try to muscle him and want him to get out of town, or if he's going to stay, oh, you need to start ponying up the dough and stuff like that. And so he calls his friends from back, you know, whatever big city he's from, to come and help him out, and it ends up in a massive shootout, you know, where they, they take out all the cops. And then this is where the movie kind of gets really interesting, is rather than leaving after they've accomplished, because this happens less than halfway through the film. Okay. Then all his friends, it's kind of a role reversal. They decide they're going to stay, and now they're going to take over the town. And so it's one of those things where, you know, the, the very thing that brought them there is, is it's now turned on him and they're become his enemies and so he's got to turn on some old friends in order to essentially save the town and it's just a ridiculous like i said a ridiculous little black exploitation film 
it's it's not it's not great, but it's not that bad either. I mean, it's it's really watchable. It's super short. Pam Greer is a badass as she always is in everything she's done. It's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean that, that that covers that. I mean, awesome. Either either watch it or don't. I mean, I don't know how many black exploitation fans there are still out there, but I mean it's it's a great little subgenre. There's yeah. all kinds of little gems in there, like Black Gestapo. Oh. Yeah, that one. That's a weird one. I'm. Sh- it, it's got a pretty weird title. It's. It's. Yeah. It's nasty and messed up. And... <laughs> oh, I mean, black exploitation found its way even into the Bond franchise. I mean, Live and Let Die. At the end of the day, is is a black exploitation film, not just in the sense that it's set in New Orleans, but some of the themes that it deals with and voodoo and things like that. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a subgenre that unfortunately has sort of faded from. The popular zeitgeist. Sure. It's a, it's a shame we don't get more films like that. Uh, I know they're trying to do a soft reboot of uh, Shaft, uh, not unlike the Sam Jackson one they did, but this one is actually going to feature like three generations of Shaft. Okay. With Richard Roundtree coming back as the original John Shaft, Sam Jackson as John Shaft. Junior and I, I don't know the the actor who will be John Shaft the third. See, let's see. It's either going to be. Chadwick Boseman or Michael B. Jordan. I don't think it's either of those. It's a it's a guy I saw his oh, name oh, and I don't. Oh, you've actually it. seen it. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. Just it's going like, to be it's going to be one out. of the two most prolific and popular black actors right now. I sure. feel like it had. Okay, well, I, I took a shot. I have no idea. I would I would love to see Chadwick Boseman in that role. Though. That'd be fine. I feel like it's it's something that he's been building up to because he's played so many other prolific. African Americans. I mean, Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And uh, James Brown. James Brown. Did you see the James Brown movie? No. You really should, man. It's it, it it's is, such it a is, transformative performance. It is literally one of like the ninety percent of movies where it's just yeah. I saw it. It looked good, and I have two kids, and I barely see. No, it. Yeah, no, I, no, <laughs> I, know? I, I, no, I get. No, it. it looks good. I, I get just, it, but you know, add it to your you bump it further up your list because it is absolutely worth your time. I will definitely try and do that. Anyway, Adam, what do you have for us this week? So. I have a film that I believe I'm about 90% sure used to be in, in the book, in one of the older editions of the book. And that's why it was on my radar, and I saw a trailer for it. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And the trailer didn't do it justice at all. And um, and I watched it just yesterday. And, and I, so more of the details, specifics might not be right there, character names, and so bear with me. But uh, it's a German film, and it's called The Lives of Others. Have you oh. seen this? No, but I remember it being in an older edition of the book, and I remember it getting... What Did it win Best Foreign Film that I, year? I, I know it was nominated. It was certainly I actually, nominated. I don't think it won. Okay. Um, but anyway, it takes place, I believe it's 1981, and this is in East Berlin. Yep, so and the, the wall, wall, the wall is still up. up. And It kind of... Sorry, to, I don't mean to, to derail you, no, no. but it to me, am I right in thinking it, it's kind of a German version of Coppola's The Conversation? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am thinking of the right one. And and again, I, I, the names are beyond me. But it's basically about how East German officials recorded artists and anybody who was uh, against socialism, anybody who had uh, strong connections to the West. And early, I mean, we get the uh, we get right early on that our our the guy that we're following through the movie he is a a staunch East German. Interrogator isn't the right word, but um, 
uh, I'm not sure what, what his job is called, but bugging and listening to people. He's good at that. He's good at interrogating people and reading people, and so he's 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 good at that. And so they suspect this playwright. He's just like a surveillance expert. Yes, then. yeah. They suspect this playwright of having some strong West connections, and so and and he has this hunch. And so it goes up the food chain, and yep, you know, it's like we're going to bug him, so they do, and he's the main guy following him. And this playwright is dating an actress, and there are some connections to the West, and he's recording this. And for the first part of the movie, our protagonist, the guy that we're following, he's reporting everything pretty diligently. But then he finds out that as he goes up the chain of command, some of the people above him aren't the nicest of people doing the best things we find out that one like very somebody very very high up is sleeping with the actress and she's being tailed anyway and it's been out for a while so i don't want to i know i could probably spoil some things um it was either 2003 or four right i think it was a little bit later than that oh it was okay but not much but um anyways the playwright decides he is going to write this big essay about um, suicide because East Germany stopped reporting suicides and they were called them self-murders. And there's this whole thing about why isn't East Germany reporting suicides? And so he ends up writing this big essay about it and it comes out and it freaks the East German people out. Yeah, I don't want to say anymore. No. But what I love about the guy that we follow who's listening in on the conversations, who's reporting is... It's the clearest definition of a true character arc. He starts in one place, and by the time we get to the end of the movie, he is somewhere completely different. And it's not a total sappy ending, but it gives you an ending that you're kind of looking for as we, as you get to the end of it. It's it's great storytelling. It's great directing. The acting in it is is fantastic. And I felt, like, I don't know, it was hard, but I, I was really connected to this movie. It... it struck a lot of the right chords maybe because a lot of it too is about artists and, and, mm-hmm. and fighting for the right to say what they can and and the state i mean i'm not gonna lie i mean it's too easy to draw these comparisons now but it reminded me a lot of trump and the media and him having his strong opinions about what's real and, and what's real and or fake news and it, it was a weird i mean it was weird to look at a movie a movie from 10 years ago about something that happened, what, 40 years ago, but feels like we're on the cusp of that. Yeah. It was awkward. I mean, I'm in the movie and I'm with them, but I'm also thinking of where we're going right now. And it was just, it toyed with my brain a lot, but it was really good. I mean, I can't take away from it. It's a really, really good film. Nice. How's the, uh, now you, you, you talked about the ending, is, and I drew the comparison to Coppola's conversation. Is the ending... N- not a downbeat one like that because in the end of that we have uh, the Harry Call, the, the Gene Hackman character who is totally now left in a paranoid sort of state where he believes that now he is the one being surveilled and he essentially tears his entire apartment apart no, looking for a bug that may or may not be there. No, it's not that at all. Okay. It definitely ends more... It has more of a, a sentimental ending to okay. it. Anyway, let's talk about today's episode and... Let's get this train... Let's get this train on the tracks. Let's let's get it going. Something um, more puns, man. You know, we figured we had to do a Hitchcock soon because he's in the book. I think eighteen times. He, he's um, in there. He's in there the most, is he not? Yeah. Oh, he is. And so we didn't go with one of the I would say more obvious choices to start. Maybe not one of the more iconic ones, even. Yeah. Um. And so today we're going to be talking about 
Strangers on a Train came out in 1951. Let's just, I'm going to go through this now. Ian, bear with me. These are the other films by Hitchcock in the book. Blackmail, 1929. The 39 Steps, 1935. The Lady Vanishes, 1938. Rebecca, 1940. Shadow of a Doubt, 1943. Notorious, 1946. Rope, 1948. Rear Window, 1954. The Wrong Man, 1956. Vertigo, 1958. North by Northwest, 1959. Psycho, 1960. The Birds, 63. Marnie, 64. And Frenzy, 72. Yet Hitch (sighs) never won Best Director. Nope. And yet somehow Rebecca wins Best Picture. He doesn't win Best Director that year. Yeah. A movie we're going to talk about soon did. And also, before we launch into Strangers on a Train, find me a better three-film run than Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho. Those were all consecutive features. That's, That's pretty good. I think Kubrick is close. If you want to go, what, what would you do? Doctor Strange, two thousand one, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and, but 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 if you but if you were to tell me that you went that you would go two thousand one, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, uh, it'd be hard to disagree with that, you on that'd that be one fine too. too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about that. Strange on a Train, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written kind of by Raymond Chandler, and um, and very prolific for being a, a, a noir writer, very famous for creating the Philip Marlowe character, and then. Uh, favorite of both of ours i'm gonna go out on the limb and say double indemnity yeah yeah uh, also famous for not working that well with directors well they had such well but it was contrasting like like it seemed like a constrained relationship from the very start because uh, yeah. hitch is from all accounts he he spent hours meeting with people not even talking about the project yeah and, he would and, just and shoot the shit yeah, and, and Chandler, Chandler was, was very yeah let's let's all business yeah um, it's based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, which apparently he uh, he, he bought, bought the rights seventy five hundred dollars and kept his name out of it so yep. that he could get it for a song, which apparently she found out about it was not. She happy was not too about. thrilled about no. that, not at all. Now, of course, she uh, one of her films has been one of her books rather has been made into a great film recently. The Price of Salt was made as Carol. Oh yeah, yeah. Carol yeah. is great. That was, yeah, I, I remember liking it more than Far From Heaven, which is another Todd Haynes film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, I the best about the best, in a long the best time. Todd Haynes film is I'm Not There. The, the, you know what? I, I, I'll admit I haven't seen it, but I picked it up like for dirt cheap at Half Price Books, and it's it's on my shelf waiting to be seen. Not really for our audience, just more for Ian to yeah, know just, that I, I have yeah. it and I need to well, see it. Well, because I'm a Bob Dylan fan, and so yeah. I, I want you to... To, to see that. Uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely get to it. Our cast, uh, Farley Granger as Guy Haynes, Robert Walker as the very, very creepy Bruno Anthony, uh, Ruth Roman as Ann Morton, Leo G. Carroll as Senator Morton, Pat Hitchcock, and I will go out right now and say that she is the unsung hero of this movie. Oh, playing she's wonderful. Barbara well, Morton. As, as, a, as a kind of double act, the way that her and... Uh, Leo Carroll interact. Yeah, is, uh, that is a true father-daughter relationship. That I buy that. Yeah, instant from the second she opens her mouth, and the way he shuts her down. Yeah, something about you know one doesn't always have to say everything that comes yes. into one's head. I yeah, mean, that is just great writing. And uh, I think the the other the only other um actor I was going to list is uh, Casey Rogers, who played Miriam. Is well, yeah, because she's she doesn't have a ton to do in the movie, but the one scene that she does share with. Farley Granger yeah. is fantastic. I, I just meant more in terms of, uh, you know, major 
Well, and I, I, you know, okay, I didn't, and I, I don't have the name on here, and you might be able to help me out, but um, the woman who plays, who plays Bruno's mom, it would also probably would have been worth mentioning because she is quite, quite the quirky little character. Uh, stats picked. I mean, you know, had some stuff. It was nominated for uh, best cinematography, black, uh, black and white cinematography. Yes, at the Academy Awards, picked up a DGA nom, which is, uh, which is, which is great. I mean, it just shows how prolific and really great at his craft Hitchcock was and it lost both of those to a place in the sun George Stevensville that's interesting because that didn't because I don't was a place in the sun even up for best picture that year I think it was yes okay um, and it was also uh, on the MBR the National Board of Review's top 10 films of the year it is not on the IMDB 250 um, but Rotten Tomatoes pretty high 98 yep not Audience too far is right behind at 92 yep this film was mostly mostly lauded in its time our good friend uh bosley crowther though um did not like it so much and we oh, was this bosley we talked about him in uh was it matter life and death or was it um even earlier than that oh where did we talk we're failing here miserably well it was an older film yeah, right it, it must have been a matter of life and death then no that was mordaunt hall yes because he had it that was great bosley crowther this is in the 50s what could that have possibly have been whatever he, so I, I want to read this because it, 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 yeah. Now, in his latest effort called Strangers on a Train, Mr. Hitchcock again is tossing a crazy murder story in the air and trying to con us into thinking that it will stand up without support. And again, his instigator of evil is a weirdly unbalanced young man who almost succeeds in enmeshing a young tennis star in a murder plot. But for all that, his basic premise of fear fired by menace is so thin and so utterly convincing that the story just does not stand. And the actors, as much as they labor, do not con- convey any belief, at least not in this observer, who will uh, who will give Hitchcock character plenty of rope. I would roll up that newspaper, swat him on the nose with it, and tell him to stop it. That's What are you even talking about, man? Ridiculous. I think you such overly harsh criticism there. I will agree with you that it is overly harsh criticism, but I think my answer at the end of this episode may surprise you. I think mine might surprise you too. Hot damn. Okay. Um so the plot of this movie is not that complicated. No. Two men, Guy and Bruno, happen to meet on a train, hence strangers on a train. Bruno recognizes instantly who Guy is. Guy is a tennis, up-and-coming tennis star. And Bruno has no... In the novel, he's an architect. Yes, yes. I, I figured we'd get kind of there a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the big differences between yeah. the book and the movie. Bruno has no personal space and goes right up to him and starts talking. And because of... Ad nauseum. Yes. And I think because of no room in the in the dining car, they decide they're going to eat in Bruno's room. Uh, mistake number one right there for Guy. You yeah. just, just just stay right where, where you yeah. are. Um, and over this lunch, Bruno brings up this this idea of switching murders. One of his many wonderful ideas that he has throughout the film. He has some great dialogue later that we'll get to. Yeah. Um, but, but basically, we find out that Guy is in a, in a new relationship with the senator's daughter, mostly because his wife is divorcing him which we find out later that that's not true. But we find out that Guy is in kind of dire straits with his current wife and how Bruno does not get along with his father and how happier they would be if those two people weren't in their lives and this idea of switching murders because neither one of them would have motive. 
to kill the other one. Guy would have no motive to kill Bruno's dad, and Bruno would have no motive to kill Guy's wife. Before Guy can leave the train compartment, Bruno's like, what do you think of my idea? He's like, oh, sure, yeah, sure, it's a great idea. Apparently, Bruno can't pick up sarcasm because that that plot has been laid. No, no, well, he is is a, a sociopath. Yes, yeah, very much so. We get this intense, intense scene at the music store where Miriam, uh, played by Casey, that's Guy's current wife, works at. And she tells him that she is not pregnant, she's not divorcing him, and that she basically didn't know that how big of a star he was going to be. And basically it sounds like she wants to cash in. She is a cold-hearted bitch. Yep, she is not a very, very warm, likable person. And in that way is portraying it very convincingly because it's not over the top. It's that right amount of smug oh, yeah. in your face. I've I've got all the cards. It's one of the best scenes of manipulation on film. Yeah, and uh, and so he's and and guy leaves. He's furious. He was hoping to call and tell Anne that the divorce was happening and that they could actually be together for real. And of course, on the phone call, he mentions how much he, he would could... love to strangle her. Yes. Cut Mistake to... number two on guy's part. Yes. Oh yeah. Yep. We can just keep chalking those ones up. Uh, cut to that night. <laughs> Apparently Miriam is a player, and she is on a date with two men. If by player you mean slut. Well, let's not let's not go that far. <laughs> um, one thing I do want to mention, because I think it's very funny, is that the actress, uh, Casey Rogers, has perfect vision, and that the glasses that she had to wear impaired her vision so much that she had to have those two guys constantly guide her through the scene because she could not see where she was going. Well, that 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 kind of explains why they're so touchy feely with her. <laughs> sure. And that, well, and that kind of works. No, right. no, it, it. I think as actors, you have to be creative. Sometimes you're given a prop or something that doesn't make any sense, and you're like, okay, I'm just gonna have to do what I can with this, and yeah. you make it work. Right. Well, uh, the the glasses do play a very important part later. Of course, they do. I'm just saying they could have maybe maybe toned down the prescription, maybe yeah. made it so she could see and do her job as an or actress. Or faked it, just put the the glasses on without the lenses. Yeah. But either way, she is... But uh, I guess you couldn't do that either because you have the great shot after. Well, sure, yeah, what you need, yeah. That yeah. that shot is probably the best shot in the movie. But yeah. but anyway, so she, they had this big fair, and she's there with these two guys, and who shows up but Bruno? That creepy SOB. And he is, um, he is kind of following her. She makes eye contact with him, and she doesn't... She's not repulsed. She's... She's, I think she's kind of leading him on. Well, he's he's very charming in the yeah. way he's got that very smug smile. I love the scene where he does the strongman. Yes. And how cool and calm he is about it, how he shows up for other two dates, well, about and, how effortlessly he seems to do it. And the, well, and right before that, he pops that kid's balloon with his cigar oh, or his the, cigarette. Yeah, that's brilliant. And what I, I read something that I, I actually kind of enjoyed, which was we see him pop a kid's balloon, and we see him take the hammer and ring the bell. He actually hits the bell at the top of that strongman competition, right? And these two pieces of information should let us know that he has the the sensibility and the strength to yes. kill somebody. Yes. Um, which, of course, and I, of course, I read that afterwards, but in hindsight going, yeah, that's, the, that's right there, isn't it? Yeah. They, um, the two guys and Miriam get on a boat. They're going out to this little island where basically people just make out. And down the tunnel, oh love. Yep. And Bruno is right behind them. 
That, and that's another great shot too. His yeah. shadow following them. Yeah, yeah. Like bear the shadow bearing down. And as they get on the island, Miriam's kind of being flirty, flirty, and she kind of runs away from the other two guys. And as she turns around, she bumps into Bruno, and Bruno basically asks one question, and he asks if her name is Miriam, and she says yes, and he instantly goes to strangle her. And this is where that really, really famous shot comes in, where her glasses fall off. And we see the reflection of her, of him strangling her in the glasses. It's a really, it's a really well done shot. Very easy to do now, but back in the 50s, I mean, they had to shoot it once on location and then once they had to replicate it in the studio and then double expose it. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In an oversized pair of glasses. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, yeah. During this, uh, he drops the lighter. And that's a great little detail. And he makes sure to linger on it yep and you think he's gonna leave it there but bruno is smarter than that and he picks it up and takes it with him and that will become a very important thing later on which i will i'm gonna this is gonna come up later but i'm gonna call that lighter the wild card yes that lighter is the wild card so cut back to guy who was arriving in dc because that's where Anne is um because of her dad's a senator and uh he's about to go inside and he hears his name being called across the street and from the shadows is Bruno to tell him what's happened and to ask him, okay, when are you going to kill my dad? And Guy is befuddled, probably isn't a strong enough word, but he is confused and outraged and it takes, I believe he gets inside and and gets a hold of him and says, "This is we heard that Yeah, no, they, they seem to know all the information almost before he does. Yeah. I mean, obviously Bruno has told him, but they're, they're one step ahead of him. Yeah. Because clearly somebody has already called. And then we get a lot of Bruno hounding Guy to kill. Yeah. And, and again, in the book, I believe this goes on for a number of months or something. Yes, they did. Yeah, Hitchcock uh, had it toned. Uh, not only did he shorten how long the story takes place, but apparently it also takes place up and down the entire eastern seaboard. Right. And they did truncated it to like just like the, the northeast. Yeah. During during a lot of this Bruno hassling uh guy, we meet Bruno's mom, who I think says a lot about who Bruno is. She's very coddling, she's very dismissive of his wild, wild yeah. fantasies such as blowing up the White House, and then she says something, I don't know how Mr. Eisenhower would feel about that, or whoever was president yeah. at the time. Something I don't know. I'm not very good with American history. That's fine. And she has that painting. Oh, the, and this is such a wonderful moment. It's, so, it's such a throwaway, ridiculous kind of... I was trying to paint St. Francis, and he almost doubles over laughing, saying it's a perfect portrait of father. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it looks like it's kind of, they're going for that very modern art, almost picasso Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, we, we finally meet the senator and um, Anne's sister, Barbara, who just thinks it would be so wonderful if Guy had killed for her. She's almost like, so she's so entertained by Guy yeah, yeah. and this whole idea that he's a potential murderer. I mean, I've got, I can't condone it, but what if he killed for you? And she's, she's great. Well, because she movie. kind of plays into what, what I, there seems to be an obsession with serial killers in this country, unlike most other countries. Sure. And and with true crime stories. And I mean, the, the, there's probably more true crime podcasts out there than there are 
film podcasts i would wait people seem to to really get into and she kind of she kind of is a a predecessor of that of what we have now with people's fascination with it well and i'm jumping ahead a little bit not that we have to talk about the entire movie in chronological order but you saying that reminds me of the scene in the movie where they're at that fancy party and well we're pretty much almost there anyway well bruno basically is explaining to this woman how how to strangle Somebody? Yeah, I mean, well, put, they're going through all the different ways that you could how, kill somebody. How would you kill, like, how would you kill your husband? Well, the gun is loud. And you can't do it. Yeah, exactly. The poison could take months. Yes. And, um, and he goes to strangle her. And there's this motif we get a couple of times. Every time that Bruno sees Barbara, the music from the Ferris wheel comes on. Great sound design. And he starts to see Miriam. He starts to see who he killed, and he can't because if, really... if you haven't seen the film, Barbara and Miriam have a very similar build and facial structure. Yes. They both wear glasses, glasses which yes. is the the trigger. I feel exactly. Well, the first time he sees her, we just hear the music, and and he's definitely he he, he his the emotions start to come up of what he's done, but he's he can leave. He's not. He's just there. He leaves the he leaves the area, and he's fine. But at this moment, with his hands on this old lady's neck. He's seeing her, and he starts strangling this old woman. He and, almost has an out-of-body experience. Yeah, and it gets, it gets so much, he faints yeah. right there in the middle of this, you know, big almost, hoity-toity party. Yeah, almost killing the, the poor old woman. Yeah. But that does not stop Bruno from continuing to try to get Guy to kill his father. So much that he gives him a key and a map, and at one point even sends him a gun. Yeah. Well, before we leave the party very quickly, there's another great piece of dialogue there well i think there's a piece of dialogue that ties into it as well where barbara says oh don't worry daddy's a senator he doesn't mind a little bit of scandal <laughs> which is a great this this movie is filled with such it's some of the best dialogue in any hitch film yeah that's hard to, that's hard to debate it's pretty good and that's i wonder how much of that is left over from chandler's screenplay they they say almost nothing is left but <sighs> i wonder how much of that is hitch and his bad relationship with chandler and yeah. wanting to not give him credit um, but then the the other piece of dialogue is as the Sen- as Senator Morton makes Guy take Bruno out of the party after he's he's kind of come to again you know you know make sure you take him out the back or something like that They're, we don't want the gossip rag seeing any of this because they'll be talking about orgies next <laughs> like which is a rather big leap to see one drunken man kind of leave the party and then jump from oh there's drunks at this party to now they're having orgies in there I mean that's a little bit of a leap yeah but it, it is. It's a big leap, but it's the kind of leap that I think a senator would make. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It, I mean, and I'm sorry, I have to say this because it came right to my mind. It's the kind of leap that some senators might say, you know, being gay might lead lead to something else like sodomy and uh, bestiality. It's the kind of ridiculous claim a senator would make. Oh, absolutely. So dealing in those big absolutes. Yeah, like exactly. That. And some other great dialogue from that party as well is when I think Bruno approaches the senator and wants to talk to him about some of his great ideas. Can you imagine, Senator, smelling a flower on Mars? I want to talk to you about channeling life force and how this great idea is going to make the atomic bomb look like the horse and buggy or something like that. What such strange dialogue that gives you these wonderful little... I think this is nowhere near the best performance in a Hitch movie, but Robert Walker's performance in this is probably one of the most underrated in sure. any Hitchcock movie. It, it, yeah, 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 I would definitely say that. It's... Yeah, him him talking to the senator, one thing that's really... that I think is very interesting is I, I had this thought that clearly his mother 
not only has she probably said that every idea he's had is good, but he's yeah. probably never heard no. Oh, and, absolutely. And being and like being a parent right now, especially young children, like Stella, for instance, she's four. She does a lot of she draws a lot of stuff at at her preschool. She does a lot of art and stuff, and some of it I think is really interesting for a four year old. And it's you know, and I always tell her, I go, I think it's great. I love it. I think what you're doing is is fantastic. But we say no to her a lot. I mean, she she's four. She de- she's de- very demanding, and she thinks she can get everything she wants. And you try to set good boundaries, like no, you can't do this. And I feel like Bruno is like if Bruno is what would happen if you always said yes to your kid. Absolutely. That, maybe that's a, maybe that's a leap, but I feel like man, you got to say well, no. Well, it's it certainly it certainly wouldn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. We did leave out a little a little piece that I think is important is that when Guy is on his way to DC, there's a drunk professor. On the on the train, yes. That he has a conversation with, who he, who guy later tries to use as an alibi that says I couldn't have killed her. I was on a train, but the guy can't remember because he was totally blitzed out of his out of his gourd. Well, he was in his very wonderful fifties euphemism. He was celebrating. Yes, yes, yeah. And that and that also leads to a very important a very important point that guy is being tailed. He's a suspect, and so he's basically is constantly tailed well, by he's, police. And this is an early trope of the good cop, bad cop in, yes. in noirs and, and other such cop movies with things like that, because he's got the one tail who really likes him and is super into him as, yeah. a, as an up-and-coming tennis star, and then he's got the other cop who totally believes that he's full of shit. Yeah. And so Guy basically finally says, I can't take this anymore. I will kill your dad takes the cane, takes the gun, and he walks, he, he loses his tail, and he walks to Bruno's house, and he follows the map, and he has the gun, and he goes in there, and he sees Well, the he body. bypasses that dog really easy. What kind of guard dog is that? That's he a, just kind of walks by it yeah. very gingerly. Yeah, just, just don't bite me. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, yeah that, was, that was weird. Whatever. So yeah, he gets past the dog very nonchalantly, goes into the room, and who's waiting there? But Bruno. So this is another big key change from the book. In the book... Guy kills Bruno's dad. Yeah. Um, but, of course, it's not... Well, you can't You can't have that. No. Because then you don't care about anybody in this film other than maybe poor now, poor Ann Morton, who is now, you know, addled with this, you know, murderer. Yeah. Uh, and well, so... Well, he, he, he's really... And in the, in the film, he's not come there to kill Bruno's father. He's there to confront him yes. and let him know what a psychopath his son is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and which, of course... So it's it's Bruno, and that of course flips Bruno. He's like Bruno's now. Well, you, I'm going to frame you for your wife's murder. Yes. And this is where the film does something really quite good. It becomes it it slips into that kind of cat and mouse race against time kind yeah. of thing. So you have it would look odd if Guy didn't attend the tennis match that he is obligated to be at. Yes. But he's got to finish the match rather quickly, and so he has to change up his play style in order to get out of there quickly before Bruno, because Bruno has hinted about the fact that he has Guy's lighter, yes. and he will plant it, therefore incriminating the him. The wild card. The wild card. And there's a great scene where he kind of, he doesn't show and goes to confront him, Bruno, at his house. Yeah. And he kind of semi-taunts her with it. He never actually shows her the lighter, but he does light a cigarette with it. Yeah. Which is a, a nice little detail of, you know, kind of, kind of giving it up a little bit but he's 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 toying with her very very well as i say this is how why i feel this is one of the underrated hitchcock performances yeah uh so yeah this so at one point yeah we've got that tennis match going on guy's doing well uh he wanted he wanted to win in three sets but it doesn't that does go to a fourth well he he believes he's going to do it in one 
No, 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 you have to. Oh, I, I see. I don't know anything about tennis. So, so either way, so, he believes he's going to do it really quickly by so changing he, up it, his play style, yes, and it he, backfires completely. Basically, what you can win, they can go five sets because it's it, it's basically first to win three sets of five. Yeah, yeah. So if you win in straight sets, you can win in three. Yeah. He doesn't win in three. I believe it takes four. While this is all going on, Bruno was on the train headed back to that the carnival, the carnival um, to plant the lighter out on the island. So that when the cops find it, yeah, they can put, they can trace it back well, to God. And he's so obsessed with how good his plan is. He's there. He can't stop fiddling with the lighter and playing with it. Somebody knocks into him. And this is where the film goes from being believable to really, I guess we can just say, jumping the shark. Sure. He drops the lighter down a storm drain. Yeah. And while the tennis match is going, which is a great, you have this great tennis match going on, this great race against time to finish it. And it's shot really well. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, yeah. I... I Knowing nothing about tennis and not being interested in it, I'm I'm enraptured by it yeah. because I'm like, oh no, you have to finish this game. You have to get there before he does. Meanwhile, Bruno has go-go gadget arms because <laughs> at first he can't reach the lighter and he's freaking out trying to get them to open the storm drain yeah. and this that and the other. But then all after a while, he's able to just kind of reach down and get it like it was almost no big deal. I mean, there's some effort to it there, but he gets his fingers on it. He just gets his fingers on it and drops it even further down and yeah. then somehow has, either, like I said, either go-go gadget arms or incredible shrinking forearms. Yeah, yeah. He still can't, he still can't plant it right away because it's, it's, it's early in the day. Or it's not yeah. early in the day, but it's the sun is it's, still it's out. Still the whole point is he's going to go do it when it's dark so that nobody sees him. Yeah. So, so that's bought guys some time. Yes, it has. Which, and it's also the only way to help us believe that guy can make it in time is because he's got to place it when it's dark otherwise bruno's gonna get there right away there's nothing stopping bruno from just placing it except that he wants to do it at night yep however guy wins Anne and barbara have made that kind of gotten this cab ready to go barbara's They've gonna distracted the cops yep exactly and so guy gets away goes to penn station yes the the cops there don't get on the train with him. They they basically call ahead. You know you should expect him. Yeah. And there's this great bit where the guy who runs the boat ride recognizes Bruno. So Bruno gets out of line as the guy's coming in. He's like, hey, and they have this big old epic. They have a uh, showdown, and then we get to. The film slips even further. It into might be my least favorite part of the movie. Yeah, it really. And this is probably why we had that bad review. I as I don't there's nothing wrong with essentially I don't know, nine tenths of this film. Yeah. So the movie ends where Bruno and Guy have this epic battle for the the lighter on this uh, carousel, which apparently has a setting that makes it go really, really fast. No. Which I don't understand why you would have that. No. Um, so this this carousel is going crazy speeds and they're fighting. Because what what happens the does the the, the guy controlling it get yes. shot? Yeah, yes, the cops get the, shot. Yeah, the, the cops, cops shoot him. The, the cops go trigger happy for some inexplicable reason. Yeah, they, so they, the, the the guy operating the carousel gets shot, falls on it, and it speeds up. Yeah, so it's going out of control, and then we've got this. Now we've turned into slapstick because this old carny man. Decides he's going to crawl I'll underneath it. I'll go underneath it. By and the way... It takes forever for him to get on. He even stops at one point to wipe his mouth. Yeah. And then keeps crawling. The thing, the most impressive thing about that is that that was all real. That old man went under the carousel. 
Well, yeah, there's Hitchcock, no way. There's Hitchcock no way even to... went to say that was the. I think he went to say that that was the most dangerous thing I've ever filmed, and I would never do it again. Yeah, well, in 1951, there's no way to fake that. Yeah, and so, uh, so basically, the 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 old man stops it. The carousel. But he doesn't stop it gradually. He just instantly pulls oh, yeah, it to, yeah. to a Which stop. Which leads to one of the most harrowing carousel crashes I've ever seen in my entire life. How many we carousel know, crashes have you seen? More than you care to know. And <laughs> that <laughs> I'm going to leave that where it lays. That was the right joking answer for that comment. Yeah. Um, oh, no, it was. And like part of the ride is crushed Bruno and the cops surround him. And guys, like just tell him. Tell him it was you. And even at the end, Bruno can't admit yeah. that he did it. And the only thing that gives him away is as The lighter he's dying, falls out of his hand. Yes. Like he was able to hold onto it the entire time. And that's pretty much the end of Strangers on a Train. And that, yeah, guy is instantly off the hook. Yeah. Oh, because he had your lighter. Yes. There's no way you could have possibly planted it there. We don't need to do any more of an investigation, even though this guy just fled from two police officers. Yeah, no, this this film is really, unfortunately, let down by those final minutes. And I, I again, I wonder how much of that, how much of Raymond Chandler's screenplay was lost. and How much it could have helped. Yeah. Do you have a favorite shot in the movie? I mean, I'm sure you do, but... It's certainly not Go-Go Gadget Arms. Yeah, it's definitely not the carousel for me. I, I, I really enjoy the opening. I love the setup. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I really, I like that a lot. I love the I simpleness love, of the premise. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really like, I think some of the, some of Bruno's stuff tailing Miriam through the carnival, you know, stalking her. Yeah. And the way that, like I said, I think I mentioned it, the way his shadow bears down on them yeah. in the Tunnel of Love. And of course, his mom's painting of St. Francis. I think storytelling wise, I, the whole that whole bit of him stalking her through. There's so much storytelling going on without words. That's really really nice. And we and then we end with that great shot with the glasses and the reflection. Well, well I really feel like the the uh, the Bruno Anthony character is a precursor to Norman Bates in a sense. They, I would they agree. Sh- they share a lot of of uh, similar tropes, and especially when you you start thinking about the mother yeah. and how much of an influence the mother yeah. truly plays. Yeah, and this this really is. Something of a precursor to that, and it's really Hitch flexing his cinematic muscles that would later lead to greater masterpieces, such as Psycho. That was something, you're going to hear the pages turning, um, that was something I, I, I wrote down, because I was curious, what came right before and what came right after this? And right before was Stage Fright, which I've never seen. Neither have I, but and, you, something that is even better that came before is Rope was only a couple of years before. Uh, this That was 46. I wrote, well, yeah. Okay, so about five years before. Oh, 48. Yeah. Okay. 48, oh, okay. so it's a few so years. three years. It's weird, because he definitely had his peaks and valleys, yeah. but early on, he had great success. I mean, Lady Vanishes, Rebecca, I mean, he, his movie won an Oscar. Yeah. He definitely was was making good movies, and then I feel like after after Rope, he kind of got tropey. I think he got caught up in. He the... slipped into a sort of a com- into kind of comfort. I feel like there's a little bit of complacency. And I think I think it's I think Rear Window a few years later is what help helps pull him out. Yes. And get us to eventually to that wonderful great three film run. Yeah. Which we'll get to in one of those, and I won't tell you which one. Out of North by Northwest, Vertigo or Psycho is my favorite Hitchcock movie, but one of those is. We're not gonna have the conversation now. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it's Vertigo. I'm not gonna tell you the answer because I'm right. Are you? But am I? You might be. Um, <laughs> so um, the suspense is killing me. Good. 
So there's a lot going on in this movie, and it's it's certainly not a, a bad movie at all. The end of it gets Ridiculous. it's a whole other planet. Yeah, but yeah, but Robert Walker in this movie is is great and cut down. So so he died the same year this film came out. Yeah, yeah, uh, an adverse reaction to prescription drugs, which is a shame because they were, by all accounts, kind of forced on him. I guess he was having a bit of a, a bit of a meltdown, or he was going through a, a bit of distress psychological distress and then when the doctor somebody made a doctor come over to examine him and he he had calmed down by that point from what i had read but they forced the prescription drugs on him yeah. and of course not knowing that he would have an allergic reaction to it and all attempts to resuscitate him uh failed so yeah. very unfortunate because i feel like there could have been so many great but who knows he maybe even would have made a better norman bates well, and you know who who he he reminded me of it, just in terms of how he looked is um is it Robert Vaughn? Oh yeah, that, and, no, I see that. And there's a similar, like they the way they carry themselves and who they are. Like mm-hmm. I mean, I could easily see Robert Walker in um Bullet, Bullet, and uh, and um the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he just I just I can I for a second I actually I thought I read the, the wrong Robert and I thought it was Robert Vaughn. At the very start of the film, I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a young Robert Vaughn. I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, it's no, yeah. the wrong person altogether. Yeah. But I think that's the kind of trajectory he could have had. Oh, I, and I can't disagree. Yeah. I, I know I said early on my unsung hero was Pat Hitchcock. Uh, I, I'm curious if you, who yours is. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And and the mother, it's, it's a it's a toss-up for me between her and the mother. I think I have to go with Pat because that, I just, and, and kudos to the mom for doing it, but I was just too... I was just creeped out by her. Yeah. I almost was, almost more than Bruno. Yeah. I was enamored by her, her. And and like I said, the back and forth between her and the dad. Yeah. Was, just brilliant. Yeah. It's like a real father-daughter relationship. I, we kind of jumped the gun on this one, but had you ever seen this before? I had. This was my second time seeing okay. this. A few All years right. ago, uh, somebody lent me that same lovely velvet-covered box set that you have. They couldn't have. Because Strangers on a Train is not in that box. Oh, is it not in that one? No. Well, either was somebody lent me that, and I, I tore through that. Maybe, oh, maybe I, it just got you to watch and, more and Yeah, I believe it did okay. get me to watch it. I was curious about the ones that weren't in there, and so I sought out a few of those. I don't think The Wrong Man is in there either. No, it's but not. But I, saw, I, saw, I definitely saw Strangers on a Train and The Wrong Man back-to-back. So, yeah, I think that, that sounds and right. And some of the... Because, like, even uh, North by Northwest isn't in it either. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Because that's a... And, and again, I... I believe I I went through a whole like three or four months of just devouring Hitchcock. Sure, and this this for a time was my favorite. I for some reason wow yeah I know for some reason I kind of looked past. I I thought the premise was strong enough. It's a great premise. It was for me. It was strong enough to kind of overlook that ending, but it's definitely slipped. I I wouldn't even put this now in the top ten Hitchcock. So here's the real question, Ian. Do you think this film should be in the book? Nine-tenths of it belong in the book. But what about the whole movie? No, the whole movie does not. Okay. I agree. So my, my bigger question is, and, and, and I also don't feel so bad about that because he's got a lot of movies in here. Yeah. He's, he's he, well he could represented. Stand, he could stand to lose a couple. So my question is, do you have something to replace it? Not of Hitches. He's already got so many. No, 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 no. I, sure, sure. But do you have another movie that you would put in there instead? Of the same... Period. So here's what, no, not necessarily. So when when I think of her, like I not because I clearly broke that when I said we could put Jackass in instead of the general. Oh yeah, yeah. So just a similar style storyline, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and if you need, because I I have one in mind. 
Okay, go ahead. So this is a story, I mean, as a lot of these movies are, it's, a, it's about blackmail. I have this piece of information against you and I'm going to use it for you to do this thing that I want you to do. And when I was trying to just look look up movies about blackmail, a lot of them came up were from the 40s and 50s. A lot of them are in the book. And so I didn't, obviously I couldn't replace it with something that's already in the book. Right, because you could say stuff like Touch of Evil or Double, Double Indemnity. Was they're the one all, that they're already in there. Exactly. So I started looking through my movies. And as we've mentioned before on this podcast already, I am a Christopher Nolan fanboy. And I would replace this movie with Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. So I rewatched that movie after having watched this, just because I was like, okay, well, let me see if, if I still like it. Does it still hold up? I love that movie. It's the last time Christopher Nolan got to direct a movie before he was Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Because after that, we get Prestige and Batman Begins right back to back, and and then he's Christopher Nolan. Well, well, now, and, and that film is a remake. And yes. I haven't seen the original Swedish version. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we've talked about this before. It didn't do anything for you. No, I don't. Not only is the Nolan one better, but I don't even really enjoy the original. Okay. It's dark in ways it doesn't need to be. And in and, and Nolan's, you actually care about what's happening to the characters. And the reason I kept saying wild card is because the lighter in Strangers on a Train is the wild card. And then in Insomnia, Robin Williams records the conversation that he uh, and Al Pacino yes, has. And he, right. he actually that's says right. wild card as the fairy's backing out. That movie is shot brilliantly. It's the last great performance of Al Pacino. Because if you think about it, he he's so he's so hooah he's so he's so loud. He's so after like heat he just became a caricature of himself. And he is so because because of he's an aging detective and because he can't get any sleep because it's that time of the year in Alaska where there's only like one hour of darkness. He has to do a more subdued performance. It's, and it's so yeah. good. I'm, yeah, I'm going with you on this. And uh that, that's just my personal ch- choice, but it still deals with the blackmail. It still deals with a murder, and but it brings in this other, obviously more of a, the police side of things as he's investigating. But it, it's it's still close with the blackmail stuff that I would put it in there. As much as, as I am a, a Christopher Nolan fanboy, I believe he only has three movies in there. Which, which for, I'm fine as, with. As many, as many as he's made isn't too shocking, but I think Insomnia is a great movie. Um, I think it's directed well. I think it's the last time he did a story that really focused on plot and not ideas. And yeah. the last time that he was able to get really good performances. And I realize that Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight is a wonderful performance. I put that more on Heath Ledger and less on Christopher Nolan. Same with, I would do the same with Michael Caine in the Alfred part as well. Because sure. even though the third film in that trilogy, as we all know, is just nauseatingly, it's exhausting. I won't go that far, but I it's not great. the The arc that... Michael Caine takes throughout the three films and what he comes to at the end and actually seeing Michael Caine cry in a film. Yeah. Which I can't think of any others. Maybe he cries in the original Alfie, but it's been so long since I've seen it. Sure, sure. Now, this is not going to be a popular opinion with you, but when I think about modern films dealing with not necessarily blackmail, I mean, I guess there is some blackmail in it, but it's more of... It's more of just direct manipulation, I think. Gun Girl. Mm. Now I know that's you. You have told me that you you listen to the audiobook. Oh, it's so good. And and the book far exceeds the movie. But I do really feel like Fincher at this stage in his career. I mean, it really it feels so effortless from a director like Fincher. Do you know what I mean? Like 
No, no, I'm. I with was. You. I was totally. Gone Girl is my second favorite Fincher film now, Ooh. after after Zodiac. Okay, which I, right. those are bold opinions when you consider things the, like well, Seven Zodiac Fight is Club. Fantastic. Zodiac is his underrated film. Yeah. Um, no, I think Gone Girl's right in there. I I like Gone Girl a lot. I think the actress's name is escaping me. Who plays the lead? Oh, I know. I don't want to grab my phone. Just do it. No, you keep talking. Okay. Um, Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike. That's mm. right. I I really thought she was going to get some kind of nomination for that. Not not the win. I genuinely thought she was going to get an Oscar nod for that. Okay. Sorry. Now I am grabbing my phone because I thought she did. Was it? I think it was a Globe. We'll, we'll cut all this dead air. Maybe. Well, just you keep talking. Oh no, that's really all I had to say about. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I, I, and I guess maybe really, I just, if, if, like I said, if we talk about manipulation, it I'm, is so, it layer upon layer, and when you start to pull back. She was. She was nominated for an Oscar? Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to, do you want to, let's redo this then. No, 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 this is great. Doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, she was nominated. No big deal. All right. I, I just, you're the Oscar expert, and I'm, I. Here's the, here's the, the great, I can't, I think it's so great that you brought up David Fincher. Because oh he is well I'm not gonna say he's the modern day hitch but as far as an heir to the throne is concerned he's he's got to be in the top two or three and and literal because so Gillian Flynn is the one who wrote the book yes. she wrote Gone Girl they are actually working on a Strangers on a Train remake. Which, Which is, I don't know if I think Affleck was in the mix yeah, at one point. I, yeah, I, I think he, he still, still is. is. And I mean, for, I mean, I don't think they're even in pre-production, but it's, right. but as the idea as it's progressing, which is just I, great that I, you brought that up. I don't want to see Affleck in it unless he's playing the senator role. Really, I don't want to see him as either of those leads. If I'm honest, I, you know, he's he's definitely matured he and changed. Play, I don't think he could play guy. He's no. not. But it'd be. I think it'd be an interesting take on the Bruno character. I don't be, think he can do it. I don't think he could do it either. But but I don't think anybody. Has, I don't think really any of us thought that like Heath Ledger could do Joker, not in the way that he did. Mm. It would. I think it'd be. I would love to see him take the challenge and do something with it. I guess. Is what so I'm would I. To say. But I. I wouldn't hold much faith. You know who I would like to see tackle one or both of those parts is uh, Casey Affleck, his, his younger brother. I despite what people have said about him and his controversies, and I know that you're not the biggest fan of. I'm not Manchester by the Sea. I'm not. I, and I know that's for for thematic reasons and for execution when it comes to score and pacing and things like that. I'm but so I, glad that movie's not in the book. Yes, it is. Is it? Yeah. It's in this edition <sighs> anyway. Uh, hopefully. Anyways. You're going to put that one off. Hopefully it'll fall off in the next one, right? That'd be great. But, but how do you feel about Casey Affleck's performance in it? I think he's good in one, maybe two scenes. Okay, because I... I instantly thought Brando when I, I, that for me was Brando at his peak. That was Brando almost, almost as good as Brando in On the Waterfront for me. Oh, we got to stop this conversation. We're on a tangent and I disagree so much with that. So that was a no, right? That was, that, that was, was a, a no. no on Strangers Ooh, on a Train. Where did we go? You're going to have to um, edit so much of this. Maybe. Uh, so that's a no from us. I would throw in Insomnia. Ian would throw in Gone Girl. I think those are both really good choices and they're, they're more modern day, but um, Hitch is in here a lot for movies with similar themes, and I think he can stand to lose one or two. And maybe as we go through, we'll see if there's any others we lop off, but who knows? I'm sure there will be. 
Uh, but that is our opinion, and we'd love to hear what you think about Strangers on a Train. So find us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave us some comments, like us, follow us, all that good social media jazz. Uh, you can listen to us on Google Play and Spotify and on iTunes. iTunes is big. Thank you for rating and reviewing us, leaving comments. It's great. We actually we read the comments, and we, we want to keep improving the podcast. So let us know what you think. Let us know what we can do to improve. Um, let us know if there's a movie you want to hear. Keep looking out for polls. Uh, we're going to release one soon. So, And also a shout-out to Cinemus. I know you guys have recently done uh, an episode on Strangers on a Train as well, so we're excited to, uh, to hear that. By the time this comes out, though. But, yeah, by the time this comes out, yeah, again, we're ruining the magic. I think yours has already been released by the time we release ours towards the end of the year. What we but... will say is that we are recording this close to when you guys released your Strangers on a Train episode. Yeah. Um, so that's a no from us, but hey, that's okay. Anything else? No, that's, that's it for me. Well, until next time, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. Bye.